Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So I've often said that when two fraud fighters meet, they'll almost always become instant friends. It can take a few minutes for us within a conversation to verify that they're not just someone who fights online fraud for a living, but that they're a true fraud fighter to their core. And that's exactly what happened when I first met my guest today via Zoom about a month ago. My guest today is Andrew Austin. He is the Senior Manager of Fraud Technology for CarMax. And if you're not familiar with CarMax, it's probably because you're outside of the U.S. I think they're a pretty well-known brand within the U.S. And they had a head start on the omni-channel experience for car buying, especially with COVID. I think that a lot of auto lenders and car dealerships have been working to try to simplify simplify the car purchasing process. And Andrew will talk more about some of their specifics and really some of the cool things about the company a little later on in the episode. But just to give you a little bit of background, it's they're not a traditional e-commerce company, but they're also not a bank. So they're kind of at this intersection of fintech and consumer lending, but also some e-commerce and a lot of other pieces as well. And identity obviously is going to play a really big part in that. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Andrew's experience going from behind the scenes in the product management of technology for AML and banking to now being the senior manager of fraud technology on the merchant side. Coincidentally, he actually first reached out to me when he started at his current role to tell me that one of the reasons why he looked for a role on the merchant side of fraud fighting was because of listening to this podcast. It was really kind and I legitimately didn't know what to say. I don't always know how to respond to compliments, so sometimes I forget to reply. And I know that it's happened more than once, and I apologize if it's happened to you. I appreciated the fact that Andrew reached back out a couple of weeks later when he could relate to the episode I did in sleep deprivation, comparing toddlers to fraudsters, as that week I had unexpectedly taken care of my good friend's twin three-year-old girls and found that there's quite a few similarities between toddlers and fraudsters. And because Andrew has experience wrangling both, he provided some really good additions to that analogy that I provided the next week in the follow-up podcast. In addition to talking about his experience really from going, starting on one end that might not seem like overlap to now being on the merchant side of fraud, he also talks about how being aligned, personally aligned with your company's core values and aligning your fraud or revenue protection strategy with the company's mission statement can really be a good thing. It can really help filter out and make decisions because you're aligning it with what the goals of the business are. I think I've said something similar before as far as the fraud fighters I know who often are most respected by leadership and other teams within their organizations are the ones who ensure that they're aligning their fraud strategy with the company's core strategy. And that might change a month or two months or every quarter or every year. But as far as the mission statement, that's not going to change as often. And I was really impressed that he also created a mission statement for his own role and overall strategy that has been helpful in everything from vendor selection to creating the fraud strategy and even his onboarding strategy as far as getting caught up within the company and meeting as many people as possible and meeting the right people. And then we'll also talk a bit about fraud in the auto industry. Well, Andrew definitely gives a shout out to episode 82 with Frank McKenna talking about fraud in the auto industry. And I believe it was covering a survey that Frank's company, Point Predictive, had sponsored all about auto fraud. And if you would have asked me, I would have thought it was recorded six months ago. But Apparently, it was March 28th of 2022, and it was episode 82, if you need to go back and look for it, if you want to. But then he also expanded on that quite a bit, talking about several of the structural challenges, especially in the U.S., 
that makes identity from within lending, within buying, within so many different areas, whether it's for an apartment or a car or a house or anything that requires credit cards, obviously, anything that requires identity, just how relatively easy that has become for bad actors, especially in the United States. He'll talk about two different types of synthetic ID, as well as the challenges in verifying ID documents, whether it's in person or online, as well as slow payment systems and other challenges that traditional e-commerce and even traditional banking may not have as many challenges with as a company that kind of sits in a Venn diagram over all of them. So it's really fascinating conversation. I don't want to forget to mention that if you are attending MRC, and I am so sorry to everyone who is not this year and who has let me know that they're experiencing FOMO, I am so sorry. I wish there was a way to filter out messages so nobody would feel like they're missing out. But if you are attending, and I know a lot of you that listen are, that's why I'm sharing this. Andrew will be speaking at MRC, actually coincidentally with Patrick Chen, co-founder of SPEC. He is Nate Carl's co-founder on Wednesday, March 8th at 2.45. So make sure that you take a look for that session to attend and go up and introduce yourself to Andrew. This is his first time at MRC. It's his first conference on the merchant side of fraud fighting. So I'd love for him to feel welcome and meet a lot of great people. And then, like I said, Andrew's going to join me on Thursday's episode, and he'll share some of his recent experiences with solution providers, um, especially since he's really new to this side. It's been interesting to hear some of his reports and his stories prior to recording, but just talking about it at a higher level of just some of the things he didn't expect. I think he had heard me talk about them on the podcast, but it's one thing to be like, okay, yeah, sure, Carice, you're probably blowing it out of proportion or whatever. It's not my own experience, so it's not the same. But I think he has some good insights for people who are on the buying side of fraud tech technology, whether you're a merchant or a bank or a consumer-focused fintech. He also has some really good advice for solution providers that I think would be great to hear right before the biggest conference of the year in this industry. And then that also led us both to talk about some key do's and don'ts for people on the sales side. And then I asked Andrew to share what I think is the perfect analogy about different kinds of buyers when it comes to fraud technology for the last episode before MRC Vegas 2023. So with that, let you listen in on my first conversation, the first part of my conversation with Andrew Austin, Senior Manager of Fraud Technology for CarMax. Welcome back to Fraudology. Today, I have a longtime listener, first time guest, and I'm so grateful for that. Andrew Austin, you are the Senior Manager of Fraud Technology at CarMax and have become a fast friend of mine. And I'm just so glad that get to talk to you for the podcast today. Yeah. Hey, Carice. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for making the time. So this is the first time that you've been on the merchant side of fraud, but you've been in similar areas. I think that, you know, we all have different ways that we fall into this by accident, but some are a little bit more predictable than others. I would say yours is maybe a little more on the unpredictable side. So I'd love to have you share a little bit of your background and your career and how uh, you landed at CarMax. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear when you interview people, a lot of them come through either payment processors or like a chargebacks team or an investigations team. And I've done none of that. So I started my career in the Army. I did 12 years in the Army, which took me all over the world doing all kinds of fun and not so fun things. And then when I got out, I went into banking. Fifth Third Bank has a uh, several leadership development programs. And I went through the one with technology and started my career there as a project manager. And then quickly after that, I was given the opportunity to move into AML compliance, which didn't really know what it was at the time, but was excited to find out. And was that, and then, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think the way that the, that leadership program worked is that they kind of selected what areas you would learn from, right? So it wasn't yeah. like you saw an opening and you applied for it. It was no. more like it no, selected no, no. you. <laughs> yeah, this is a rotational program. So a two-year program that you did four, six-month rotations in. It's mainly for new college graduates, myself, a little bit of an unorthodox path there. But yeah, it was generally for new college graduates to kind of give you an idea of what am I going to do 
with my life in banking, right? Because you, you come out of college, or in my case, college in the military, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it was a great spot to land. I was able to be a project manager, a business analyst. I worked in finance for a bit, and then finally in business controls, which was another risk function. So a lot of the stuff I worked in when I was in that program was risk or risk-based. But yeah, no, I didn't get to choose necessarily where I was going in each rotation. So the second one was an AML compliance, and it was right at the beginning of 2015. And it was when KYC and customer due diligence or CDD was first being starting to be required within the financial services industry. And there was an advance notice came out from FinCEN that said, you have to do this. And I was the one that got to take that and run with it and figure out what this was. What did that mean? So I got to do all the scoping of what we would have to do as a bank from a technology perspective, got to work with our business partners and understand what they wanted from a compliance perspective, and then move on to an RFP, vendor selection. I got through the vendor selection, had to finish the program, and then came back and worked on the implementation itself of the system. So set up a case management, a risk scoring system for all of our customers from a, are they risky from a money laundering perspective? So did that. From there, I, I moved on to AML transaction monitoring. So as part of a, an AML program in every bank, you are required to understand what your customers are doing. Where does the money come from? They're moving it around. What are they doing with it? Saw some really interesting things there, but spent three and a half years finding a vendor, standing up a new program to detect potentially suspicious activities to investigate them, to report out on them, and then finally for SAR filing at the end of that process. So I love doing that, was feeling a little burnt out, you know, working with the same people for six years. And, it was the same uh, project, basically, same right? Project. Like from the beginning yeah. to the end. From, from early 2015, we actually had started on thinking, we're going to replace our transaction monitoring system. And mm. then this notice from FinCEN came down and said, you have to do this. So wow. put that on hold for a couple of years, do this KYC project, and then come back to the transaction monitoring. And yeah. What was funny was this was the same time, around the same time that Zelle and real-time payments were coming out. So we were trying to combine things and see what we could do with that. So it was a really exciting time at banking and AML. But like I said, you know, six years working with the same people every day. I love them to death, but was ready to do something else. Well, yeah, right? and I think if you're on a project for six years, it's hard to feel the impact because every day probably feels like Groundhog's Day in a way. I mean, and you're making such incremental change. I mean, for such yeah. a large bank, it makes sense that that would take six years to really change out all of the technology all the time. across every single channel. But it would probably feel like, oh, I got a lot done because it's just the <laughs> same, almost the same thing for so long. It so was. It, makes sense. it was. Yeah. And this was really before we moved from away from Waterfall. So we weren't doing anything in an agile perspective. And, you know, you, you set your requirements three years before you implement something, there's a lot of change along the way. So the last year of that project was a little bit of churn and some long nights, but we got it done. And I was feeling ready for something new at that point. And I saw an opportunity at WorldPay as a technical product manager reporting into their head of global merchant fraud solutions. And it just so happened that the only AML conference that I ever went to when I was at Fifth Third was a conference that my manager at WorldPay had also been at. Wow. Sitting at tables next to each other, never met. And it just happened to come up in the interview. I was like, oh, you worked on this? You worked hmm. with this vendor on the AML side? Well, we work with this vendor on the fraud side. You know, you, you talk about the industry being small. Quite often it is very small. Being the first foray into fraud, specifically card fraud, I thought, it would be a little easier than it was. AML is, yes, it's payments and transaction-based, and you're looking at similar things. The anatomy of a fraud payment or a hard payment is a little different. And the things that you need to know to effectively combat that and build a fraud product that merchants want to use is a little different. And I was really lucky that the people at WorldPay within the Merchant Fraud Solutions Division, a lot of them came from Fifth Third because WorldPay, in some really odd way with acquisitions, came out of Fifth Third. So I was lucky that my manager really took me under his wing and taught me about the types of fraud that merchants see. I didn't know what a chargeback was even. I had to come up to speed very quickly on the technology, moving from batch processing and AML to APIs and real-time data processing and fraud. And... It was just a really great experience. I got to learn so much about card fraud and meet with merchants almost daily 
and understand what their fraud problems were, learn about bots and ATO and how can we solve these solutions? And it was, it was just a, a very, very informative time there. Was also able to work a little bit on, on fraud orchestration in the last couple of months that I was there. And it was just a great experience. So you're still focused on, yeah, you were still focused on the technology side for sure, but a foray from AML to fraud, as well as from banking to merchant processing and ultimately serving the merchant e-commerce merchants. Those were who you were supporting. Yeah. Merchant was a new word to me. (laughs) Yeah. When you're in banking and technology and banking, you're kind of on the back end of things and you're the guys that, you know, we're not going to put them in front of anyone. So you don't, you don't really get all the industry knowledge, maybe a little bit you do, but you're not out front meeting with other banks and talking about things. And it just, it was just a completely new world to me, but it was a great learning experience. I really loved my time there. And towards the end of last year, I got connected with CarMax and they were recruiting for a senior manager of fraud technology, specifically looking for someone with fraud technology and product experience. It wow. seemed like a good fit. And, you know, I started researching the company and, you know, you look at their the CarMax website says that CarMax, our commitment to innovation and iconic customer experiences have made us the nation's largest retailer of used cars. And they put the core values right there too. Hmm. It's not just on the wall in a break room somewhere. The, hmm. the core values are right there in front of everyone for the world to see. It's do the right thing, put people first, win together and go for greatness. And as I was going through the interview process there, I could tell that people believe those things. It wasn't just Oh, yeah. These are our core values. Do them as you want to. It was, we believe this and we live this. And the thing about iconic customer experiences is that is at the center of everything they do. They really, truly believe that. Why am I here? Carmax really recognized the need to bring someone in that understood fraud and the industry from multiple angles. And I think my diverse background of doing the AML, the KYC, as well as the card and payment fraud and being able to speak with merchants and understand the broader industry of what's going on in the fraud space really helped kind of seal the deal for that. So my mission is really to combat fraud across an omni-channel customer experience. It's not just a car dealership that you walk into and buy a car. There's, I think at this point, 230 plus CarMax locations across the U.S. You can walk into one of our dealerships and buy a car, you can start online and progress pretty much all the way through and have the car delivered. Or you can call our contact center and purchase a car that way. They can help you progress through the process. Or you can start somewhere and end up somewhere else, right? There's so many different ways you can do that. So in looking at what we're trying to do, which is have an iconic customer experience, we have to be selective with the type of controls that we put in place. We have, I think you, you called this out maybe a while ago, or maybe one of your other guests did using the term targeted friction. Yeah. Right. That is what I'm a huge proponent of that. Me too. I, if you look at your website traffic, you know, you're going to have 40% that are bots just scraping your site. You're going to have 30% that are good customers. You're going to have 10% do this or that. Yeah. I don't know how this breaks down, but the majority of the customers are coming through, probably 99% of your customers coming through just want to shop for a car or a pair of shoes or a t-shirt or whatever it is. And I don't need to be putting an MFA in front of everything or a CAPTCHA or whatever. You know, I don't need to be putting friction in front of every single person that comes through. We want to be intelligent about it. So the mission statement, I've gone through several iterations of this. I've been here three months, just over three months at this point. I've been through several iterations of this, and I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up, is to reduce loss and increase efficiency by deploying intelligent solutions that detect, deter, and prevent fraud while supporting iconic customer experiences. That is what I want to do, honestly. Like, I think I could go into many different examples of bad customer experiences because of fraud controls that we mm. don't really have time for here. But when I think about an iconic customer experience, it's something that wants to, that brings me back. It's mm. not just, that was a good experience. And there's plenty of statistics around there about if you have a bad experience, you'll tell this many people. But if you have a good experience, you're probably not going to tell that many people. Yeah. But iconic customer. Right. Yeah. But you'll come back. An iconic customer experience to me is something that makes you tell other people about it. And yeah. that's really what our mission is, is, is that we give you such a good experience that you are not just happy. You are happy enough to tell other people about it. 
I think it's a great mission. And I love the fact that you created a mission statement for yourself and for your department and your mission. That's not something that I hear many fraud teams or leaders do, but I hope that's something that they wrote down as a good team exercise. I, I'll put it on my business card and hand it there, out. <laughs> there you go, right? Like maybe that's your side hustle in between having two and a half <laughs> ch- young children and, and on the way and we've got and everything else you do with CarX. But like, yeah, I think that's a great takeaway for people is, Sometimes you can be a little bit like rolling our eyes at the mission statement. And I certainly have been, especially because like you mentioned, we've all worked for companies where they have a mission statement, but it's just like a check the box. It's not something that drives them and is something that they do all the time as someone who owns their own business, going through various coaching programs and things like that over the years. I feel like everyone starts with what's your company's mission statement. And mine has changed a bunch of times. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the things that are most important to me. And sometimes it's also helpful, not just to remind yourself of what's most important to you, but remind yourself of what isn't, right? If this isn't on the mission, it's very easy for me to get distracted and want to do all the things. But if this isn't in this right now for right now, like maybe that's not, maybe now is not the time. Exactly. And what was interesting, like when I came in, you, everyone started a job and you get a list of people you need to have one-on-ones meet yeah. meetings with. When I came in my first day, I was in a meeting and my Outlook notifications just started going off <laughs> and they kept going off and I kept going off and I thought, what is going on here? And I, you know, it's a new computer. Maybe it's not set up right. Maybe someone's updating this invite and no, someone was setting up meet and greets for me. They set up like 50 meet and greets. They just set them all at once. Well, they must have like pre-done this. But they set up a ton of uh, meet and greets with me, different people across the business. And it was purposeful. It was folks that I'll have to work with, that I'll need to work with, that are my stakeholders, that maybe this guy's just good to know, or this gal has been here for 30 years and might be a good resource for you one day. It wasn't just, hey, here's the people in our department <laughs> and figure out who you need to work with. It was right. people all across the company. And it really helped. I put a 45-day plan together before I even came in. And they had apparently already done it for me. And just so happened, they synced up. But I really wanted to come in and understand the business, understand the tools, the policy, the technology that we have in place today, be able to identify opportunities and challenge those opportunities because I'm new to the auto industry. Just because I think something is off, maybe I'm wrong because I just don't understand certain things. And then assess how to address those through technology, policy, procedure, and or education. Hmm. Because we have, you know, it's like I mentioned earlier, it's not just go to the car dealership. We have several channels that you can come in, which means that there are multiple threat vectors that we have to uh, address for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that those of us in fraud know, I mean, you're obviously included in that. We all know that innovation is an awesome thing, but innovation also often means new threats and new risks. And so even when we're looking at how oh, it's it's a great thing because we also get to learn, oh, hadn't thought of that before, hadn't thought of that before. But it's also, you know, bad actors love innovation and innovative business models just as much as everyone else, if not more, right? Usually they're like the earliest adopters, but it also can be helpful when you have things set up to be able to have a lot of really good feedback and understanding and say, oh, okay, well, yeah, we have a feeling this is the way they'll do this and this is the way they'll do that. And then being able to tie all those things together. And one cool thing about having multiple channels is being able to have multiple different types of verification or validation or authentication, right? It's not all online. It's not all mobile. It's not all in person. So you can layer that and to your point, work that into the targeted friction as well. Yeah. And you know, we have a solid fraud program here. I've read some statistics about what auto dealers do, like not big national ones, but like what like an individual mm-hmm. auto dealer in your hometown would do. And it's mostly like photocopying an ID, yeah, which is scary. But we have a solid fraud program here. I, I think CarMax just recognized that as we expand into e-commerce, as you know, I, going back to my time at WorldPay, talking to merchants day in and day out that had expanded or gone into e-commerce for the first time that mm. had no idea what they were doing, like. We took steps ahead of time hmm. to combat these things, they, but they wanted someone to say, like, we still want to expand in different areas of business. We want to increase our e-commerce presence. Can you come in and help us out? Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, 
other than a small oily fish in the herring family. Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other people business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Well, and looking at it from a technology perspective, right? Because obviously, you know, fraud prevention programs often are operations focused or, you know, strategy focused and all. And there's so many different pieces, right? There's the tactical piece, there's the reporting piece, there's the projects, et cetera. But looking at it from technology, that shows a future focused company. Too often, companies are making decisions after the fact, after they've lost millions of dollars. Yeah. And the fact, I mean, we all know I that. I talked to a lot of those. <laughs> you and me both, let me tell you. Yeah. And sometimes even after they've lost all that money, they don't understand that it's preventable and it can drive me batty sometimes. But they're like, oh, it's just a cost of doing business. No, it's not. It's preventable. No, it's not. And it's preventable without impacting your good customers that much. As maybe 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. Maybe if you... Depending on who you took advice from, that's a whole other story. But for instance, there have been some types of technology where it was all or nothing, whether it was MFA or 3D Secure or things like that. And now you can do more dynamic. You can have more risk indicators further up the chain, yeah. similar I mean, to what Matt talked about too. And yeah, right? so I yeah. love that episode. Honestly, he's talking about landmines and tripwires. That's exactly what more merchants should be thinking about. Right. I mean, in an e-commerce setting, like you have so many signals. So you can get device risk, email risk, phone risk, address verification. These things are out there and I've been looking at them. So trust me, there are a lot of them out there and they are very anxious to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) The technology company. Oh yeah. Right. We're going to talk about that a little later today or, you know, actually probably more on uh, Thursday's episode. Because I know that as someone who is very new to the merchant space, you are just learning that you're the prettiest girl in school, especially in advance of the fraud Super Bowl, so to speak, coming up in a week. You are very popular. And I think that people, both merchants and vendors, will find that really fascinating to hear your experience about that. But just kind of circling back, I think that not only is there a lot of technology in that, I think that it's equally important to know when you're getting those signals, similar to the conversations with Sid and Matt at Novo, and then following up with Nate. Like, I think that I was so excited that all of this was going to line up because Matt and Sid, then Nate, and then you, like, you're all very similar, but different in the way that you're approaching this. And to their points, you can get all those things at the time of transaction, but by then it's almost too late. If it is. If you're getting them during the entire customer journey, then you can actually create customized experiences for different personas or different groups of customers. And you can provide red carpet service to the ones that you know, right? They've been on this device before, they've ordered before, they've done everything the same. This is absolutely the same person. There's no way that there's even an emulator involved. Like it's the same person. Yeah. Let's, let's give them an extra promo. Let's make it fast. Let's, you know, all that. Let's give them an iconic experience, right? But oh, yeah. this person's a little different. It looks like the same device, but it could be different, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I've had two things happen in the last 24 hours where like one was a merchant that I done business with multiple times. 
and I'm going in on the same device and the same everything. And they tell me that I need to re-enter my card number at the time of checkout. And they tell me that it's because that they only ask this if I'm using a new device or if I'm in a new area or if I updated my address. And I'm thinking, you guys told me that the last time and I didn't do those things. <laughs> Every time I come on, yeah. I have to re-enter. So I have to go downstairs, try to find my credit card, go re-enter it. Like, it's not enough for me to not do business with them again. It's a, But it is enough for me to not, you know, if somebody asks me where to buy their dog's pet food online, I'm probably not going to run and say, oh, oh, I just get it at this company or this retailer because it's a pain in the ass, right? I know that that's not why. I'm in this industry. I know I didn't change those two things. I yep. love the fact that they message that. But I think the fact that they message that, then maybe they feel like they have to do it at other times. Otherwise, fraudsters are going to say, OK, we'll commit account takeover and we won't change the address and we won't change the device. And then, you know, so that's one example. And then the other one was today I logged, I just logged into my email the same way I do every morning when I first wake up. And I got like this, or yeah, I think it was either my email or my browser. And I got a message, an email from my uh, email company saying, hey, we saw a new device logging into your system. And I was panicking at first. What mm -hmm. device did it? I'm like, wait a second. That was when I woke up. No. And those things are, it's great that they're there as customers, but it's also a pain in the ass if we're like, hey, I wasn't doing anything risky. Can you just leave me alone and not freak me out? It's yeah. a difference. Well, the other thing is with the rise of scams, and we see a lot about chat GPT making it easier for fraudsters to, to actually write convincing sounding emails. Like, how can you even believe some of the emails you get that a fraudulent device, you know, a new device is yeah. signed into your account? Like, I, I get those emails all the time. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> Did I, I wasn't actually sure. do this? You're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or it could be someone else sending it because yeah. I didn't log, nobody logged in, but they're trying to get you to click on it. Absolutely. I got one of those just the other day from my bank. It was three emails that came through at 4.30 in the morning that said a service has connected to your account. And I'm thinking, okay, is this Venmo or Mint or PayPal? Right, <laughs> yeah, right. You, you connect things to your accounts yeah. at a point in time. And then I know that logically, I know in the background, like it's going to lose connection at some point and has to reconnect. And that's automatically sending something off. So like I wake up in the morning and I look over my wife. I said, did you set something up on our account? She said, no. I said, well, change your password now. Because mm -hmm. I don't know. There, there's plenty of times where you just don't know and you just have to be safe about it. Right. And we do this for a living, right? Whereas yeah. like people that don't, they're really confused. I think what we're getting at is at the end of the day, it's so much better to do whatever you can behind the scenes so that the only the only time that you're providing those landmines or those tripwires is in the case of there being something that was weird, that mm -hmm. was different. And then the messaging is we're just trying to protect your account, right? We're just trying to keep you safe. But if you and I both keep getting those types of emails and we either think we're either phishing or we're getting a text message or whatever, it's either phishing and nothing happened. Or these systems are saying everybody's risky all the time. We're just going to drown them out. And then what? So yep. it's finding that balance. It makes it so much harder. Yeah. So moving on a little bit, now that you're in the auto industry and you've done a really good job of explaining how, how you're approaching this and everything and looking at it and that it's not necessarily that they hired you because there was a problem. It's because they hired you to make it better for their customers so that you, know, you can prevent those problems. And by preventing those problems, you also aren't impacting the iconic customer experience. And I know for me, I always love working with those companies that very clearly are thinking about their customer from the moment that they do anything, both working with them as a consumer as well as a consultant. If I have to go through everything, you know, I'll, I'll get about why it's important and all this stuff. It, it, I can do it and I have, but it's nice to know that, okay, this is our main goal is customer experience. How can we do other things like keeping our company safe and our customers safe, which is often seems like it's the exact opposite to customer experience. How can we do that with that still in mind? But just now that you're in the auto industry and, you know, newly a merchant, can you share a little bit about the fraud landscape and threats that are targeting the auto industry, not just auto lending. Like I mean, there's just, there's so many, like you said, you have different, I think in addition to the different channels, you also have different businesses and different business models within yours. So you're really walking and chewing gum at the same time. We do. Yeah. So we do, have, we have CarMax and so we also do our own lending. And as you said, we have an e-commerce presence as well as, as stores. So there are a lot of different ways that people can come in. And I'll just talk about the auto industry in general around some of the threats that that the auto industry faces. You know, oddly enough, one of the first episodes of Fraudology I listened to was with Frank McKenna about a year ago when he was Before talking about the were, very same. 
before I was even here. And I listened to it. I thought, oh, that's great. That's, you know, <laughs> I'll never that's have That's not to my world right again. now. Yeah. <laughs> and I went back, I think as interview prep, I went back and listened to that because so I could this is what we're facing. I know what you're facing. Mark? But no, it was a great episode. And he touched a lot on synthetic ID. And I think that's probably our biggest thing. Right. Mm-hmm. As, as auto dealers and auto lenders, but taking a step back, like what is it? What is fraud in the auto industry? It's identity and some payment fraud. Mm. And when I talk about multiple things with identity, synthetic ID, a lot of people talk about synthetic ID. And I don't really know if they know what it means. Yeah. And there's, I, I haven't listened to it recently enough to know if I'm repeating what Frank said. You know, there's two, primarily two different types of synthetic ID. There's first party synthetic and third party synthetic. Mm. And first party is really more. It's using your own information with a different social security number. And most of this comes from credit repair agencies or CPNs, which stands for like credit privacy number or credit protection number. Which really and is just another, I mean, a CPN is really just a made up a social stolen, security number or stolen, stolen social security number. Yeah. It yeah, drives me but, drives me insane that, yeah, everyone's talking about CPNs as if they're, oh, we're keeping you private. We're keeping you safe. This is a good way yes. to repair your credit. No, you're using somebody else's, like a child or someone who recently is deceased, social security number. Absolutely. Like, yeah. The, the problem with that is people don't even realize it's fraud. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're preyed upon by a credit repair agency. And these things are not hard to find either. It's on Telegram. It's on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's on Instagram. I was looking the other day. You just type in CPN group in the search bar on Facebook and you'll have a ton of hits come back. And it is someone selling a synthetic identity. And I sent you a screenshot from yeah. Telegram, some Telegram group that I was following the other day. And it's, you know, if the use case here is I have a low credit score and I need to rent an apartment, buy a home, buy a car, right? Mm-hmm. And they, these fraudsters are building packages for you to say 200 bucks, you can get a secure credit card. $400, you can rent get an apartment. apartment. $700, you can get a car loan up to 50,000, right? Yeah. And what they're doing is building a synthetic identity behind the scenes with a credit score good enough to do X, Y, or C. Yeah. And you are paying them. And, you know, it's a tough situation to be in. I mean, we can go talk about the credit industry, how terrible that is. If you have a 500 credit score to legitimately build that back to a level where you can afford to do something. Yeah. Rent a house, rent an apartment, buy a takes car. Takes a long time. Takes a long time. I, yep. And After a divorce, I, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I've never been in that situation. I see it like within our culture. Mm-hmm. What am I trying to say? Within, within our, the U.S. Within, too? Like within credit, the credit reporting? We see this just in, in society today. You know, you have a bad credit score. Well, if I have a bad credit score, I still need a place to live. Yeah. I still need transportation to get to my job. And people don't see another way out. Mm-hmm. And these Facebook groups or social media groups, Telegram and credit repair agencies prey on these people and they either knowingly or unknowingly are committing fraud. Because if you have a 500 credit scoring and you pay someone for a CPN that gets you a 750 credit score, now we're giving you more favorable terms, yeah. which is lost interest income to the business. And you are also, because in all likelihood, you are a higher credit risk mm-hmm. of defaulting on that loan. So that's the problem with first party synthetic. I'll just keep it there. Yeah, yeah. And I would say the one other thing, and I mean, this is very like US specific. However, I know that even like international listeners of fraudology are often in charge of something around the US, you know, whether it's consumer or credit or lending or anything like that. But we definitely could go into everything that's broken about it. But I think what you're saying too is to do it the right way, it takes so long. And even then people still don't trust you. Even if your score is good, they still see Oh, you defaulted on so something six payments, years ago, right? Defaults. And even if it's like, wait a second, those were right, or whatever it is, you know, it could be a valid excuse. They have to make a business decision for themselves in a quick amount of time. And if they're doing the right thing, takes too long. And in the meantime, where are you going to live? Where's your family? How are you going to have a car? All these things. Then, yeah, you don't ask a lot of questions, or you think most people think if it's illegal, it wouldn't be on Facebook, it wouldn't be on Telegram, it wouldn't be so easy to search. Yep. If only that were true. The social media companies could do a lot better locking that down, but that's a topic for another day. I would say the other piece of first party synthetic that we, that the auto industry sees is undocumented immigrants as well. Mm -hmm. If they need to get housing or transportation, it's very hard unless you're paying cash for something. Mm -hmm. So if you want the ability to finance something, then sometimes that's your only way. Yeah, to uh, your the, point, speaking of first party synthetic, and I know third party too, I mean, I want, if anyone is really wants to hear even more about that, um, Frank's Frank's episode on, I think it was when he was going over the auto industry survey 
about yeah. fraud. He really went into it too. But it's, you're you're doing a good job at a high level. I just know if anyone's like, wow, I want to know more about that. Certainly that episode's a good one. Yeah. Take the advice from the guy with 30 years experience over me. <laughs> oh, I would not sell yourself short. I think this is actually like a recently five to 10 years issue. So. <laughs> yeah. But quickly on the third party synthetic. I mean, that that's really a completely fake identity, right? You are taking a social security number that belongs to someone else. You are putting a fictitious address, a name, and you're blending this together. And there are literally sites out there that will tell you how to do this. Like mm -hmm. on the surface web, this is not dark web. It's this is how you generate your CPN. This is how you actually open the credit file at the credit agencies. <laughs> this is go to this website and browse for loans. You'll get rejected. Go to this bank and mm -hmm. get a secure credit card. And it's just, they build them over time until it's high enough that they can really get some credit cards so they can get an auto loan and they might pay on it for a little bit and they bust out, pay for it for a little bit. And then that $100,000 car that they bought from you and that $50,000 of credit card debt they've racked up. They're gone. They're gone. And, that and they're not a person. Exactly. <laughs> so really hard to find. Moving on to the identity, they're stolen identity. They're straight up ID theft. And I think that kind of speaks for itself, right? You target someone or you find a wallet in the gym locker room and you try to buy a car with their information. And then fake identity. Any car dealership can be targeted this way. If you go to test drive a car, what do they ask you for? Can I see yeah. your ID? Yeah. And the vast majority of them are going to look at it and say, okay, yeah, it's good. They might photocopy it. They might hold on to it and which, hand you the keys to the car. Which never makes sense to me, right? Because don't you need your driver's <laughs> license to drive that rental car? Like what if yeah. you get pulled out or not rental, but... The test drive the car, but I, yes, <laughs> that's like a yeah. whole other thing. I can poke holes in almost anything. And especially since COVID, like most of the test drives are by mm. yourself now. Right. It used to be that the salesperson would come with you and talk your ear off and send you on a five <laughs> minute route so you yep. can make a $50,000 decision <laughs> in five minutes. But now they're just, here's the keys, go be back in a reasonable amount of time. If I've handed you a fake ID, I can just drive off with that car. There are controls that dealers have to put in place to combat that. You know, we can only go up to a certain dollar amount or you have to be over a certain age, but we don't want a profile. So we, you know, there are some things you still have to put controls in place. And fake identities are so easy to get. It's not that they're easy to get. It's they're very good quality. Yes. Going back to Telegram. Like I was in a group the other day that's, you know, these people are literally, they take videos. And we follow the same guy on LinkedIn. This, there's a Georgia Tech professor, I believe, that studies this on yes, the dark web and on Telegram. Hoping to have him on very soon. Yes. Awesome. I'm I hope you do. about it. Yeah. I hope you do. But he's posting videos like daily of mm -hmm. these people are showing their work of check washing, of, of IDs that they're creating, of passports, and they are top notch. Yeah. Right. And for a hundred bucks, you can go on the surface web, go on Telegram and get yourself one of those and then walk into any car dealership you want that'll let you test drive a car. And there's your car. I think what keeps it down is that it's not, unless you are a criminal enterprise, it is difficult to move cars, right? It's mm -hmm. It's not as easy as like e-commerce if you're moving clothes or jewelry or something. It's a much larger item that you're responsible for moving. Last thing I, I want to hit on here, and I'll do it quickly, is payment fraud. There's payment fraud in every industry. And if you make it easier for customers to pay, right? if you say that you can only pay with check, that might cut down on who wants to do business there. But if you say, hey, we offer ACA, just log in with this whatever, and we'll let you pay for your car. They log into that whatever portal. And is it their account that they're using? Yeah. You don't hard know. To know. Nope. Hard to know. And if it's not their account, well, it's not illegal to have your brother pay for your car or your uncle pay for your car or your mm. mother-in-law to pay for your car. Mm -hmm. So you can't just put controls in place that say, you know, it has to be your bank account. Right. Could, but that's not a great customer experience. Hey, you're and, you restricting know, that, good customers, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, if I have an account with my wife, but it's she opened it and it's her name on it. Yeah. And I go to pay with her account. Are they going to say, no, you can't buy the car? Then you have a lost sale and no one wants that. And most people wouldn't understand that, right? And, yeah. Or, you know, how many, I'm not this parent, but how many parents gift a gift <laughs> down payment on a car to yeah. their child? Those yep. types of things or other situations. And yeah, I can see how it's very difficult. And especially with ACH because it's not real time. And most people aren't paying, whether it's auto lending or, you know, they're buying it outright. They're usually not doing that on a credit card for different reasons. And yeah, most dealers will not pay. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, you they can't pay a loan They don't want to pay that 3% fee. <laughs> well, no that, way. Yeah, and it's also you're paying a loan with a loan and then you're still leveraged and there's chargebacks. And, right. So, yeah. um, the, yeah. the last thing I just wanted to call out real quick was check fraud. Everyone, if you pay attention at all, you'll know that check fraud is up. 
But I think what's unique, and we do have some just like wash checks that come through, but I think what's unique to the auto industry and other industries are seeing as well is fake cashier's checks mm. that have a number and a website for customer service. And we see this with, uh, with like proof of employment, proof of income. We see it with checks too. So someone will come in with a cashier's check for credit union. There'll be a number on there. We call it up and someone picks up the phone as credit union and they have a website. You go to thiscreditunion.com and it's there. So we, you have to be vigilant. And that's well, why I mentioned- employment too, right? Like back on the identity yeah. side, I know this isn't as much payment. Within those packages that you found on Telegram and all that, they included for the car they package, they call them novelty employment mm-hmm. stubs because, you know, they- yeah. Why do I need an employment stub? Like, what's the point of a novelty employment stub unless I'm going to say, hey, this is my proof of income? But it can have a website. It can have, you know, I know Frank has talked about that I as do well. The same thing. Yeah. And I think that the biggest challenge is in all of this is the fact that those fake IDs are no longer easy to spot. And especially in not. the US, every state has a different type of driver's license, yeah. different everything. And when you're relying either on a human or technology to identify this, especially ID God, but I know there's a lot of them. They are so good. And I know that when we're talking on the technology side, and we'll be doing that a little bit more on Thursday's episode on the prevention technology side, those that are specific to ID document verification, I can't tell you how many different types of companies, not just in the auto industry. I mean, I would also say a lot of the issues you just named aren't just prevalent for auto dealers, though I did work with one of the largest auto dealerships in the U.S. a few years ago, as as you know, on a consulting project and know that, you know, they're all very similar issues, but it's also car rental companies and especially with organized crime and all that, right? I mean, how quickly yep. can they get it on a container ship and get it out of a port city and they've given you a completely fake identity so there's no one to go after? So many different issues. But I think that the biggest problem that so many people have on the identity document verification side is who it's almost impossible for identity doc verification to keep up with how good it is to fake these driver's licenses and things. And Lord knows there's about 20 different companies that all claim that they can do it and they can do it better than everyone else. Oh, yeah. And you know this more than most people. (laughs) I think I've talked to all of them. Yeah, I mean, so back on the differences, like I just renewed my driver's license in Ohio, right? I'm. This is the only time I've ever actually paid attention to it. Right. And I went to the DMV, which in Ohio is odd because we call it the BMV for some reason. Only state that does that. Um, But I go there. And I'm looking at my licenses side by side and it's such minor differences, right? So if I renew online, Mm. I can do it for four years. If I renew in person, I can do it for eight years. And I've got a different governor now from the last time I had an issue. I've got a different registrar and I've got all these different like minor little differences front and back Mm. that if you're asking someone to manually review these documents. Right. And I live in Cincinnati, which is very near to Indiana and Kentucky. So one of Mm. our stores here is very possible that you're getting Ohio, Indiana and Kentucky driver's licenses. Right. And you have to know all of that, right? If you don't have the tools in place to effectively validate those, those Mm -hmm. are good IDs. It's incredibly difficult. And yeah, and though you were looking at two different driver's licenses that were both completely legal and were verified (laughs) and there were differences. But also we could get into how easy, especially during COVID, it was to ask for a new, you know, say that your driver's license was canceled in someone else's name and just and have it forwarded out of state because people moved or because they were living somewhere else. Or that was the Danielle Miller on it's Danielle, yeah. Queen of the Con. Queen of the Con. Yeah. That was how she did it for PVP and unemployment loan. She wasn't getting a fake ID. She was getting real ones yeah. in people's names. And because of Telegram, and the reason we bring up Telegram more than Discord or anything else is it really has even the playing field. Fraudsters no longer just have to go on the dark web. You don't need a Tor browser and onion router and all these other things. And there's not really any barrier to entry. So now anyone can do it. And there's all these tutorials, you know, for 20 bucks, 30 bucks, you can figure out how yep. to do it. And they're telling you, hey, if you go to this state and you do this and this, it's really this state is easier to get a new driver's license or you can just send in a new picture and have it be you. And they're not looking at the person who's different. And that's the problem always with fraud that that relies on manipulating different systems is that you're now relying on every single company or government entity in that ecosystem 
to every cog all, in the wheel. Yes, every cog in the wheel to all have the best in class or best whatever, just even a little more than the bare minimum, right? And think about yeah. this or think about the fact that identity theft happens and that's almost impossible. I had a feeling that this would happen very quickly. Uh, this is why I said, I think we're going to need two episodes, but I have no doubt that people really enjoyed this. I know I always enjoy our conversations. Um, and often we have to have a timer because then we're like, oh, it was an hour. It felt like 10 <laughs> minutes. What? When I say we become fast friends, like we really have. it. It's crazy. But I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm so glad that you are going to join me again for Thursday's episode where we can talk a little bit more about overall fraud technology, whether it's identity fraud or payment fraud technology. As you mentioned towards the beginning of the episode, you have a unique experience of being primarily on the banking or the solution provider, the seller side of things. And now the buyer side, and especially the time of year it is with conference season right around the corner. Conference season's coming up? Yeah, I'm sure that you haven't been reminded of that 27 (laughs) times just since we've been talking in your inbox. But it's wild to me when I talk to solution providers and say like, well, you know, you're not the only one that writes them, right? And they look at me funny. I'm like, because they'll say, well, I sent them five emails. I'm like, you, do you have any idea how many emails I get? And the fact that this is not part of their job. Five. Yeah, right. five per, but five per salesperson is what I mean. Like no, no, I they might, that. yeah, they might say like, I sent them five times and they're, they must be ignoring me. I'm like, they may not have even seen those. And that's not even part of their job description. So I think you've got really good perspective there. And then I shouldn't say obsessed, but I really like an analogy that you shared with me last week that I said, ah, can you please share that on the podcast? And it really has I will to do gladly with that. Share. And since this is the, you know, since Thursday's episode is going to be the last one before MRC kicks off, I think it's perfect timing. Let's send it out with a bang, then. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking, right? Everybody's going to download it on the plane, probably, or that's at least last year. I know people were saying, oh, I just heard your voice on the airplane. I'm like, why? You knew you were going to hear it here, too. Why do that to yourself? But anyway, I am so grateful. This is such a good conversation. It's so hard to cut it off ever. But we'll stop here and come back on Thursday to talk more about that. And I am looking forward to meeting you in real life and verifying yes. that you know, you have legs and you are a real person and not just in Zoom. I do have legs. <laughs> They're somewhere there. I can't get about that high. <laughs> you are a real person and not in a Zoom box. And I will talk to you on Thursday before we meet in person. Sounds great. Thanks, Carice. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.